1: Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, philosophy, and mythology and pop culture, and you name it, we analyze and talk about it podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back. It's been a little bit since we've done an episode, hasn't it?
0: Yeah, been a couple of weeks, and we're sorry to have taken a little bit of time off. Obviously, as new parents, we have a lot going on, and our schedule is very unpredictable.
1: Also, I'm not actually sorry because we needed to take some time off, and so we just took it.
0: Okay, so no sorry, but a thank you for your patience and understanding. That's something that I'm learning to do is instead of apologizing, just saying thank you.
1: There you go. Yeah, Thank you, Midnight Myth listeners, for hanging with us and not jumping ship to your other not quite as clever or charming history, mythology, philosophy, pop culture podcasts.
0: Yeah, exactly. If
1: there is another one out there, you know, let us know. We'd actually... Yeah, we
0: would love to collaborate with them or just listen. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Let us know. Anyway, we are back here and we wanted to do a really big episode, an episode that we think you all, dear Midnight Myth listeners, would really enjoy. And it's one that's been on our back burner for a while, we're going to be talking about Francis Ford Coppola-directed Bram Stoker's Dracula. Now, if you've been following us from the beginning, our very first episode when we were still trying to figure out what the Midnight Myth was was a case study into villains where Laurel and I both independently picked a villain to research and talk about, and I picked Dracula, and I heavily based my pick on the bram stoker's dracula so we're cycling back to the first episode we've also talked about interview with the vampire which has had vampires and we've peppered in vampire and vampirism in other episodes so we're not going to we're going to try not to tread too much of the same old water but we also felt like talking about dracula writ large wasn't the same as talking specifically about Bram Stoker's Dracula. So we really wanted to do an episode based 100% off of that movie and really answer some fundamental questions of, why vampires? How did Dracula come about? Why did Francis Ford Coppola pick Dracula for his horror movie, and hopefully we're going to be able to answer all of those in this discussion.
0: Yeah, and if you've been you know, listening for a while, you may have noticed that in some of our most recent episodes, we've been sort of revisiting Uh, properties that we had introduced in early episodes back when we were, like you said, still figuring out our format and frequently doing comparisons across different types of media. And since we've kind of figured out who we are and how we do this podcast, we've been conducting deeper dives into specific pieces of media. So it really seemed like along with The Matrix and Les Mis and every single Harry Potter installment, this movie was something that was really ripe for our discussion because it gets into some of our favorite subjects around history, mythology, and philosophy, and some pet subjects of ours, too. Uh, So we're really excited to talk about it, to get really deep into this adaptation and the richness therein.
1: Absolutely. And as always, let us know what you think. We'd love to hear your thoughts on Bram Stoker's Dracula Which, speaking of that, Laurel, do your thing.
0: Yeah, so if you want to get in touch with us, let us know what you think of the podcast. Ask us any questions, whatever's on your mind. The best place to do so is Twitter. We're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're also on Facebook and on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. And we're on the World Wide Web at MidnightMyth.com. Also on that website, you can find blogs, extra content, and links to our Patreon and our merch store if you wanted to support us monetarily. The very best thing you can do for the podcast, however, is free, and that is just to head over to your favorite podcast listening app, especially Apple Podcasts, and leave us a rating or a review. So if you like the show and you want other people to find it or you just want to tell us how much you like the show in a way that is really meaningful, five stars and a couple of words really, really goes a long way.
1: And if you love this show, tell a friend. And if you hate this show... Tell your enemies.
0: Yeah, tell the creepy old count in Transylvania who's been holding you prisoner if you really hate the show.
1: And let's move on to our briefest of brief recaps. Go for it, Derek. So spoiler walls for a movie that came out in 1993. What? I never know this, 94, it was early honestly, 90s. I don't know. The movie starts with Vlad the Impaler, Impal- a Romanian knight of the Order of the Dracul or the Dragon, rising to stop the invasion of the Turks after they had sieged and taken over Constantinople. This knight is successful despite the fact that the Turks outnumber him several soldiers to his one, and he returns home having defended Christendom, only to learn that his beloved wife, Elisabetta, was tricked into thinking he died by vengeful Turks and she committed suicide upon hearing that her soul is damned because suicide is a mortal sin that they will not be reunited in heaven. Vlad ends up cursing God, stabbing a crucifix and declaring that he will rise from his own death to avenge hers with all the powers of darkness as the Cross starts to bleed. The angels start to bleed as blood comes out of the candles. He grabs a cup and drinks, declaring that blood is the life. Flash forward now to England in the late 19th century, in which a legal clerk named John Harker is given the job of going to Transylvania and selling properties to this eccentric Count Dracula. When he gets there, he is confronted by the Count who finds the picture of his fiance Mina, who is the spot-like, perfect, identical twin of Elisabetta. Dracula ends up buying the properties, imprisoning John Harker, and he sets his sights on going to England and then making sure he dominates and controls Mina and brings her back into his life as Elisabetta reborn. His first attempt to do this is by seducing and corrupting her best friend, Lucy, causing the group of Lucy's suitors to wonder what is wrong with her as he is draining her blood nightly, and they bring in a German philosopher slash physician slash occultist named Van Helsing to investigate this case. This is when Van Helsing realizes it is his mortal foe, Dracula, who is there taking over Lucy, Sadly Lucy dies, becomes a vampire and Van Helsing chops out cuts out her heart with a stake and chops off her head. Now Dracula in London is seducing Mina as the prince and Mina decides that her true love is actually Dracula flash forward they end up catching mina and dracula in bed together where mina is drinking dracula's blood and they end up ushering him out of the country and he must return home to transylvania Our heroes having destroyed the earth that he slept in because dracula must sleep in the earth from his country all of this climax is when they confront dracula on his way back to his castle and he escapes having been wounded with mina And they end up in the chapel, and Mina ends up driving the blade through his heart and decapitating him, giving him peace, healing the schism in the cross magically as Dracula has some sense of redemption upon his death.
0: The curse is broken, and the final shot lingers on this beautiful fresco of the Count and Elisabetta being reunited together in heaven, or at least presumably that's what happens.
1: Very, very brief recap. Now, this movie came out in the early 90s. It's been around for a while. It's part of Francis Ford Coppola's collection of films. Francis Ford Coppola is a cinematic legend, the director of Apocalypse Now, The Godfathers, etc. So two questions for you. One, does it hold up? And the follow-up question, where do you rank this among Coppola's movies? Tackle them in whatever order you like.
0: Oh, okay. So I'll get the second question out of the way first, uh, which is where does it rank in Coppola's movies? I have a ton of love for Coppola as a director, and I find a lot of his work incredibly uh, inspiring. And I was not expecting you to ask this question because it's very difficult for me as someone who... Uh, finds Apocalypse Now to be one of like the greatest movies I've ever seen. And also like looking at the story behind it being made, it is just such a fascinating piece of art. I also, uh, only just recently at your behest, finally saw the Godfather movies. And of course, they're freaking perfect. They're incredible. But for me, just based on uh, what I like, my interests and the stories that I'm the most drawn to, I have to put this for me, not necessarily a better film, but more of a favorite. This is one that I enjoy watching more. This is one that I've rewatched many more times than the others. So yeah, I'm going to rank this really, really high among Coppola's efforts.
1: So what's your actual ranking?
0: My actual ranking for my favorites or the best?
1: Take it however you want.
0: For my favorites, it's, it's, this is number one. Uh, And then Apocalypse Now is just under that. And then the rest of his filmography is also amazing. But like, those are probably my top two. That's where I would put that.
1: That's fair. For me, easily, Bram Stoker's Dracula is my favorite Coppola. Yeah. Unless I'm watching The Godfather, then it's The Godfather. And then it's The Godfather. It's like, people ask me what my favorite sport is. And it depends if it's baseball or football season. Yeah. Because if it's baseball season, baseball's my favorite sport. Then football season starts, then no, sorry, And then there's that time where they overlap and I almost melt down and can't handle it.
0: Yeah. So my favorite Coppola movie is the one I'm watching right now.
1: Uh, Between Dracula and the first, and let me be very specific, The First Godfather. Those are two of my all-time favorite movies. And they are my two favorite Coppola movies. And whichever one I'm watching is my favorite Coppola and is the one I think is the best. And we just watched Dracula, so Dracula's number one, The Godfather's number two. But then if, when we are done recording, we turn on The Godfather, I would instantly flip it and say, it's The Godfather, then Dracula.
0: Yeah, and I'm one of the weirdos who prefers The Godfather too. but I... That's totally, most, most
1: people prefer Godfather too. that's totally cool.
0: Just by a hair. Anyway, so I'm going to tackle your first question now, which is, does this movie hold up? You can probably sense what my answer to this question is going to be, but it's very rarely a one-word answer. Uh, If you're going to ask for a one-word, then I'm going to say yes, unequivocally yes. Uh, There is an elephant in the room that we have to get out of the way at the top, which is the rather unfortunate performance by the great Keanu Reeves. Uh, I think he's a great person. I think he has turned in some great performances over his career, and this is not one of them but I'm glad he's in it just because it can be kind of fun to go back and reflect on what a weird time it was that Keanu Reeves was cast as Jonathan Harker. I think Winona's performance is also a little bit all over the place, but she does turn in a couple of really emotional scenes. Overall, the casting is rather inspired. Anthony Hopkins as Van Helsing. And what is kind of a, a weird turn by Gary Oldman, like, you wouldn't expect Gary Oldman to be the first person to come to your mind when casting Dracula, but it works so so well. I think he delivers a wonderful performance. For me, what really powers this film is the unapologetically gothic uh, aesthetic that Coppola aspires to and and perfectly nails. Like he really gets at the uh, the aesthetic. He really gets at the heightened, over-the-top, emotional, expressionistic quality in the performances, in the costumes, in the visuals. The visual effects themselves are stunning, and they are 99% in-camera. There's only one post-production effect, and there's no digital effects in the entire film. And watching that is really, uh, it's mind-bending when you think about how they were able to accomplish these really fabulous looking effects while using really early cinema techniques. Uh, But for me, again, it's the gothic aesthetic and it's um, it's how Coppola uses that aesthetic to enhance a story and tell it in a way no one had told it before. I do think it's a pretty good, pretty faithful adaptation of the novel. Of course, there are some aspects that Coppola has taken much, much further than Bram Stoker could in 1897. Like he takes the sexuality to a very heightened level that of course someone writing in 1897 wasn't going to do, but he breathes very new life into the Dracula legend and takes that story out of being relegated to camp like it had for a century before. So I love it. I think it is a fantastic effort. I think it is luxe and beautiful to watch. And I can't get enough of it.
1: I um I'm literally like shaking my head and snapping yeah. <laughs> in agreement because I agree with everything that you would that you said. Yes, I think it holds up. Personally, Keanu Reeves does not bother me and has never bothered me in this movie. And I recognize that I'm in the minority. And perchance this is my nostalgia goggles because I saw this movie when I was very young. I didn't know anything about acting or how British people were supposed to sound. So I went right along with his performance of John Harker, but it never bothered me. I think Winona Ryder, is she goes from fine to great in this. Most scenes, she's fine. Some scenes, she's really great. And I do think from a performance standpoint, Gary Oldman and Anthony Hopkins as Dracula and Van Helsing, respectively.
0: Oh my God, and Tom Waits as Renfield, like-
1: Tom Waits is amazing. All of the the like hero group that has formed, all those men, they're all fantastic, including uh, Carrie, what's his name? Carrie
0: Elwes, yeah.
1: Yeah, so yes, I think it holds up. When I saw this movie, when it came out, I was a boy. I was probably around the age of like 12-ish. I can find that date precisely, but that's not important. I was just discovering things like metal music and getting really into playing the drums and getting really into Wearing all black and being a little, you know, suburbanite gothic kid railing against the what I viewed as the conformist majority. However, I was 12, I wasn't that elegant. And this movie came along. My parents, knowing it was a hard R, still took me to see this movie because I really, really wanted to. I really wanted to see it because I was interested in the occult and I was interested in all things gothic. And it was one of those movie experiences that was transformational. And it helped pl- like helped me plunge into goth from like 12 to 14, those two years where I was like, I'm a goth and that's who I am and that's what I will be. Same. And, and this movie is part of the reason that I was okay with taking that sort of journey into my life. And it's been one of my favorite movies. I've always owned it. Since it, it was available, we had it in Laserdisc to date me and my family. So when it came out, we got it in Laserdisc. It was a family favorite that we watched several times as a family together. And since then, I've watched it as often as I can. There are times where I'm like, "I'll maybe I'm doing something I'll just put Dracula on and just have it playing while I'm doing other things. So yes, this is an important movie to me. It meant a lot to me in helping me get in touch with my inner goth kid, as well as I do think it holds up and tells a interesting and important story. And I touched on this in our first episode because it makes Dracula more sympathetic that he's not just a monster. He is avenging the death of his wife and whose soul is damned based upon religious dogma that he himself at Great Sacrifice defended. He has a justification, a rage at his lost love, and that even though he does so many irredeemably evil things in this movie, he does them in hopes to connect to his love, and ultimately the movie gives him a semblance of redemption is what makes this a unique take on the Dracula narrative. The fact that it is about love enduring through time, space, heaven, hell, and blood is what makes this a unique take on the Dracula property.
0: Wonderful. You know, I don't know when exactly or how exactly I came to Bram Stoker's Dracula. I know I was on the younger side, but... I was, it was certainly not when it came out because I was two years old. It came out in 1992, I just checked that out. But I know by the time that I came to it, I was already like a huge fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which came out five years after, at least the uh, television show came out five years after Bram Stoker's Dracula. And when you rewind and think about the influence that it has had on shows like Buffy, on uh, Twilight, on so many contemporary vampire narratives, just this adaptation of Dracula in particular and how it portrays the quote-unquote vampire with a soul or the vampire who is a tormented lover, you can absolutely see that influence kind of tracked through to Angel, through to Spike, through to Edward Cullen. And as we'll talk about through tonight's episode, I'll definitely track where that comes from in the 19th century and where that lives within Bram Stoker's novel. But it's important to remember just how influ- influential this film is on more contemporary vampire narratives.
1: Yeah, making the vampire a tortured, hot person who really wants to love a mortal but can't and has to reconcile with that. that That is the story of all of the famous vampire stories that followed from this one. Interview with the Vampire, True Blood, Twilight, Buffy, this idea of a sexual chemistry between an immortal monster and a mortal human, typically the monster's man and the woman is or the mortal is is a woman but not always, sometimes that can be flipped.
0: Absolutely.
1: And sometimes it can be like interview the vampire, two vampire men but one who wants to identify at, with the mortals more so than with the vampires. But that narrative of the vampire that has a sympathetic aspect or quality to them, expressed typically through romantic acts of expressing love and or lust for a non-vampire. <laughs> Francis Ford Coppola invented that.
0: Well, I, I would beg to differ there. I do think he is an important keystone in the contemporary development of it. But I think, uh, you know, to get into some of the analysis uh, for this episode we can see that that comes from a very early tradition. So there are vampire-like creatures in ancient mythology and across cultures. Pretty much every culture has a vampire or something like a vampire, something that consumes blood or energy or other resources from the living and is one that has risen from the dead. But a lot of the folklore really crystallizes in the high to late Middle Ages, think 12th century, and a lot of it is coming out of eastern and central europe though again it is spread across cultures but for our purposes in this episode i'm really interested in the development of the 19th century vampire which is what gives us dracula and if you think about it our modern conception of what a vampire is the tropes that are associated the fact that they can turn into bats or fogs or wolves the fact that they need to be invited in the uh, the, the garlic the Night walking versus daywalking. So many of those tropes come to us from Dracula, but they are preceded elsewhere. So we have to look at where it all came from. And in the 19th century, there's really uh, a slow trickle and then an explosion of vampire literature. So one of the earliest uh, vampire stories is called simply The Vampire with a Y written in 1810 by John Stagg. Uh, I'm not going to spend too much time on that because three years later, a much more famous writer, in fact, one of the most famous writers of all time, the first literary celebrity, writes something that has a vampire in it. His name is Lord Byron. And he writes a poem called The Jour in 1813. Now, Byron had just done his grand tour, which is if you were a man of a certain rank or station in uh, 18th or 19th century Europe, particularly England. Then you would do this trip, this guided trip throughout Europe and the rest of the world. Uh, and this would be to introduce you to the classics, to introduce you to antiquity and to the Renaissance, great works of art and culture, to really turn you into a well rounded man as you came of age. So, as Byron is traveling, he encounters a ton of vampire folklore in the Balkans. And he writes The Zhaur after learning this Turkish folk custom in Greece about what to do with a dead body, if you suspect it's a vampire. So he writes the Zhaur, and the Zhaour itself, that means infidel. So the character, the title character is uh, supposedly condemned to become a vampire after death and to kill his own family which is a thread that we see time and again in vampire narratives, whether it's family or loved ones. The vampires are typically preying on those that they love the most. This idea that we hurt the ones we love or that there's a special intimacy connected with vampirism, especially in the 19th century. So let's flash forward to 1816 to a very famous night that we have talked about before on this podcast when Byron, Percy Shelley... Mary Shelley, Claire Claremont, and Dr. John Polidori get together at Byron's villa in Geneva, Switzerland. Byron proposes a contest to write a scary story, and he himself writes a short vampire poem, later called A Fragment. Mary Shelley on this night, of course, conceives Frankenstein. And Dr. Polidori, who is Byron's doctor and a friend of his who travels with him, sort of runs with Byron's idea, this vampire story that he writes, and he eventually ends up writing the short novel The Vampire, also spelled with a Y, much like John Stagg's story, and he publishes that in 1819. So the vampire character in The Vampire is called Lord Ruthven, and he is clearly Byron. Like, he is just absolutely based on Lord Byron. He's a sexy, brooding nobleman who brings trouble everywhere he goes. He's mad, he's bad, he's dangerous to know. And the vampire becomes the origin point of romantic vampire literature with Byron or the Byronic hero at the center. So pretty much every literary vampire that erupts out of this is in the image of Lord Byron. Now, Polidori and Byron actually ended up falling out over the publication of this story because one of the publishers mistakenly attributed it to Byron, and he was not too pleased with that. But we'll skip ahead again to 1872, when an Irish writer named Sheridan Le Fanu writes Carmilla, which is another gothic vampire novel. And at the center of it is a female vampire named Carmilla who preys on a young woman named Laura, and it contains sexual and homosexual undertones and overtones as there's a very intimate connection between the two characters. So this one is amping up the sexual nature of vampirism while adding the further transgressive aspect of a lesbian relationship in a Victorian context, which would have been very scandalous. It also is the first to introduce vampires transforming into animals so Carmilla can transform into a cat, which we'll later see Uh, in Dracula and other vampires going forward. So then at the very end of the 19th century, 1897, Bram Stoker, another Irish writer, publishes Dracula. It's considered, of course, the masterwork of Gothic vampire fiction, but it doesn't exist without Carmilla, it doesn't exist without Polidori, and it absolutely does not exist without Lord Byron and without the medieval vampire folklore from antiquity and the Middle Ages before. So I wanted to draw that line just to say this is kind of how it developed throughout the 19th century. This is where it lives within the genre of gothic literature, but also to focus once again on this mysterious, dark, brooding, sexy stranger who keeps showing up on our podcast, Byron or the Byronic Hero, who is the inspiration for the vampire today. He's the inspiration for Angel again. He's the inspiration for Edward Cullen. And He is absolutely at the heart of the inspiration for Gary Oldman's portrayal of Dracula, if not Dracula, in uh, Bram Stoker's novel. We have to have that dark, sexy, brooding lover who, once you get close to them, you are putting yourself in danger. And obviously, I'm skipping over a whole host of other works that were developed in those uh, decades, but I wanted to point out the most important ones and the ones that really contribute to uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula and to Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula.
1: It's amazing how often we can distill different things that we're discussing back to Lord Byron.
0: He is He's vying for status as friend of the pod along with Plato and Sigmund Freud. I think at this point... Friend of the pod, Lord Byron, is appropriate.
1: Yes, and and all of Roman history.
0: Yeah, of course.
1: Which we will be bringing up, believe me, Of we course, Because Dracula has something to do with that. But uh, can I add in just a few other details? Please. Pre the romantic, uh, Byronic establishment of the vampire? Yes. The word vampire is Romanian. So it did come out of you know, the Eastern Central Europe, and it was a ancient pagan tradition to think that people could rise from the dead and drink blood. This is largely due to when a human body dies, if it's not embalmed, but it's just left, your body fills with gas and your stomach expands and blood will often escape the mouth. So people would see dead bodies with blood coming out of their mouth and big full bellies, and assume that they woke during the night and drank blood. That's why this happened. The reason that the folklore says stakes through the heart can kill vampires was how do you combat this? You stake the vampire, the suspected cadaver of being a vampire, to the ground so that when they wake up, they can't actually move. Oh,
0: wow, that's That's great. (laughs) Yeah, that's
1: where that comes from. I have no idea where the garlic comes from. Maybe because body smell, I have no idea.
0: I mean, garlic is anti-inflammatory. I know there are some ancient sort of rites and traditions around lots of different herbs. So I have to imagine garlic at some point I don't for know. medicinal purposes. Who knows?
1: I have, I have no idea where the garlic comes from. But I do know that's where the steaks come from. And as vampire tradition and as vampire stories were gaining more and more prominence, Um, Maria Theresa of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, saw so much of vampirism in these areas that she either controlled or sought to control. That she dispatched her chief surgeon to research these claims, and he published a works that scientifically disproved vampirism. However, the stories had taken, had held, and they spread throughout Europe like wildfire right before the emergence of guys like Lord Byron and what we're talking about. But I wanted to talk about why vampirism has existed in one form or another. The word vampire, the idea of a human cadaver raising at night and drinking blood is very specific to these areas in Eastern Europe and the mythology of Eastern Europe. However, the idea of creatures who can drink blood for life is, as you said, ancient. And there is a reason for this. Ancient peoples understood that when you lost your blood, you died. They knew that there was a direct connection between blood and life. And they had rituals around blood and the idea that things could exist in cycles where if you gave blood, e.g. blood equals life, you could get life back just in the way that you could have cycles of nature, you could have cycles of the moon, you could have cycles of blood. So blood sacrifice is central to all ancient religions and the emergence of the Abrahamic faiths, which are the foundations of modern day Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And the simple idea is this, give blood to the gods, give life to the gods, they will give you something back, usually a harvest, fortune. But you spill blood, you spill life itself to the gods to gain something back. And these rituals exist. It's why the Vedic traditions of ancient India have so many sacrifices. It's why the ancient pagans had sacrifices. It's why Jesus Christ gave his blood to redeem man as the ultimate sacrifice, the blood of God itself, is given to man so man can have what? Eternal life. Blood equals life. If blood can equal life and you can do this in a holy context, it would make sense that some maligned powers could take that life for selfish reasons, for maligned purposes, that there could be a creature who could drink blood and then gain life in an unholy way. That's the nature of the vampire, the idea of blood-sucking monsters that can extend their life by stealing blood, by drinking blood. It's also true that all over the ancient world were accusations of people being cannibals, e.g. eating the flesh primarily of children so that they could gain longer life. A myth that exists to this to day, this
0: da- I was like, I have heard this recently
1: in the modern QAnon movement that supposes that rich and powerful liberals are eating blood and flesh to extend their life. So these these ideas are really embedded deep within both Near Eastern Indic and Western civilizations.
0: That is a crazy boomerang that you've just thrown, but it is. I think that's amazing because it shows this sort of primal, almost primordial sense of this universal theme that we've all kind of latched onto or these universal fears. What is the most fearful thing? The consumption of human flesh. What is the most uh, perverse and, and disgusting thing? The consumption of human flesh and particularly children. So yeah, that's fascinating.
1: And it starts with a true observation that blood and life are intimately linked. And it would make sense if blood and life are linked, then there is something lifelike in blood. Now we now know modern peoples that can study blood, exactly the relationship between blood that it carries oxygen around the body. Ancient people didn't have such science So they had myth to fill in the gaps between what they observed so that they could make sense of it, so they could tell a truth. And from these truths that they told comes the legends that would ultimately sit there in Central Europe and develop into a cohesion vampire mythology that will be written by the romantics and then immortalized by film. And it's worth noting that Until Dracula made a presence in film, Dracula was not the number one vampire story, one. Right. And two, vampires were not the number one ghouls that people were worried about. But it isn't until the movie Nosferatu that we see the vampire, which was based heavily on Dracula, becoming the number one haunt, the number one ghost, the number one ghoul that we should all be worried about. And the legacy of the modern vampire mythology is one linked with the development of film, which Francis Ford Coppola is aware of and builds into this movie because what does Dracula want to do with Mina when he meets her? See the cinemonograph, see the first movie. What does this creature, this undead mythical beast of the medieval worlds say there is no end to the wonders of science.
0: Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. Coppola pays incredible tribute to the early development of cinema because Dracula is a story that takes place right at the turn of the 20th century. So right at the time that these technologies are being developed. So he puts early cinema uh, and going to the cinematograph into his film while also incorporating the visual effects techniques like double exposure uh, and rear projection into his uh, visual effects strategy. So he's absolutely in conversation with that. There's an interesting story behind the film Nosferatu, which if I remember correctly is 1931, I believe it comes out uh, early, but it's an unauthorized adaptation of Dracula. It was not uh, something that they got the rights for this film by F.W. Murnau and there was a huge copyright dispute.
1: 1922.
0: 22, earlier than I thought. Uh, there was a huge copyright dispute with the estate of Bram Stoker, and they sued, and the many of the copies of Nosferatu had to be destroyed, but then a couple of copies remained and were unearthed, and then it was discovered as this great classic of cinema. So it's a very interesting story that this incredible piece of movie making was almost lost to history and lost to obscurity and now uh, it still exists and has been helpful in defining the legacy of the vampire film but you're absolutely right in saying that dracula doesn't gain any sort of infamy or notoriety as a pop culture property until he makes his debut on screen especially with the bella lugosi performance and coppola is on a mission to, in many ways, validate that uh, that presence on film and also rescue Dracula from the kind of campy cinematic tradition he'd been relegated to. You know, there's a really interesting thing that is pinging in my mind from when we just read Salem's Lot a few months ago because Stephen King, in the intro talks very much about his influence from Bram Stoker's Dracula and how Dracula, in his mind, was considered, quote-unquote, trash literature because it was pop culture at the time and it was really kind of in the tradition of a penny dreadful, but it was so valuable to him in creating his great vampire novel and, of course, it has been so valuable in creating a literary cinematic, television, theater tradition. So there is this validation, I think, of pop culture and quote-unquote trash that's happening in Coppola's film. And he's he's taking gothic, this aesthetic which on film can very easily turn into trash, and he is making it extremely luscious and heightened to the point that it just toes the line of being too over the top, but it takes itself, I think, just seriously enough. I want to rewind to one other thing that you were talking about in uh, when, when you were just talking just now about the line that is walked between uh, folklore and the kind of mythopoetic thinking and ancient people not quite understanding how anatomy worked and then the contemporary... Uh, technologies that surfaced to help us uncover those mysteries of life, because I think that relationship is also really important to Dracula. The relationship between the ancient, the old ways, the religious, the superstitious on one side, and then on the other side, technology and progress uh, and science. I think these things are clearly set up as opposition in the Dracula story because we have Uh, this sort of conception of, I don't love this distinction, but the East, as Jonathan Harker puts it, this folkloric and superstitious world where Dracula inhabits. And then Dracula comes to the West in England, this supposedly very progressive, very modern, very technologically advanced society. And we see the old ways and the folklore trying to duke it out with technology and science. And we have characters who stand in for those things, who stand in for folklore, who stand in for science, go head to head and try to see who wins.
1: Yeah. One of the things that this movie does that I think doesn't hold up over time for me that I, I do scrutinize is it's demarcation between where the rational lives geographically versus the irrational does. And even though Transylvania, Eastern Europe in this tale is part of Europe and people have lived in Eastern and Central Europe for thousands of years, have traversed it, have communicated with other, other societies, have been mapped, have been connected geopolitically to empires from the Holy Roman Empire to the Ottoman Empire, um, to all of the societies around it, there's an idea that as John Harker travels more eastward, even though he is still within the proper boundaries of Europe, he is traveling out of civilization and into the wild. And he calls the Carpathian Mountains one of the most wild and unknown parts of Europe, which is historically hogwash, by the, by the time we are on the turn of the 19th to early 20th century, I mean, these are places that are going to turn into battlefields in World War I in about 20 years after this movie. You know, like, and where this movie is set geographically and chronologically, like, these are places, territories, that empires have been fighting over for a long, long, long time. These are not wild and unknown. Now, this is not to say that these places at the edges of forests Um, aren't more remote and aren't more disconnected from metropolises like London? Sure, absolutely. But there's this idea embedded into Dracula by virtue of how it frames its introduction that there is a buffer, forest, wild area and that place stopped the savage Turks from invading all of Christendom And what did this wild area get from this protection? It got cursed by God and it became a land of demons because of it. And that is a little unfortunate to the modern day Turks, the modern day Romanians, um, you know, the people that live there now. And there is a little bit of a um, slide towards Well, you know, the more West you are, the more cosmopolitan you are, obviously the less backward you are. And the one redeeming quality the movie has is Van Helsing, who bridges the gap between East and West. He's from Germany, Central Europe, but he's Dutch, actually. The character is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's from Northern Europe.
1: Oh, pardon me. I'm totally thought he was German. I don't know why.
0: But it's that's close to Germany.
1: But in, in any event, he is not from one of these bustling cosmopolitans in the West. He doesn't discredit the folklore of old. He when we first meet him, he is merging the idea of Venus and syphilis and Christianity as a way that that you develop ideas around diseases and names of diseases that can create what he calls the ethical ideas of modern Christendom. The idea that like, we're going to name diseases after pagan gods because we know they're linked with sex. And we know that too much sex can cause disease. So we create this idea that sex is wrong. And in this, he has a sophisticated way in which he bridges the gaps between the old and the new. And it's telling that he's talking about a sexually transmitted disease because this movie, as uh, I asked on Twitter, what did anyone think? And, the one response I got was, "This movie's horny.
0: This movie is horny. No, you're making a really good point about Van Helsing because just as there is this distinction between uh, science and folklore, and you would expect the uh, the heroic men of science and the sophisticated technologically advanced metropolis of London to come out on top because of their science, it's because they have Van Helsing, the in, the eccentric, the open-minded, the man of science who also is interested in validating folklore and superstition, who also says there is a reason that we have these things. I'm going to paraphrase here because I don't have the exact quote, but at one point when Dr. Seward is expressing a ton of skepticism about uh, vampires and the supernatural, Van Helsing is like, Jack, you're a scientist. Don't you think there are things out there in the world that you don't understand yet, but that are true? And then he goes on to list things like mesmerism, hypnotism, and astral projection as these things that we don't necessarily understand yet, but we have demonstrable evidence that there is some truth to them. So why wouldn't there be some truth, even if the science of it hasn't been discovered, to vampirism? And by that token, we also have Dr. Seward exploring scientifically what Renfield is going through. Renfield who consumes bugs and birds and animals in order to gain their life force. He is another form of vampire. But what we're saying here is that we beat Dracula not because we have superior technology, but because we are able to look into the past and marry the kind of progress and technological advancement with an understanding of folklore and a validation of superstition
1: yeah and well i'm going to push back about that slightly if that's okay yeah because i don't think van helsing should be seen as the validator of superstition as much as the destroyer of superstition his job is to purge the old world, is to kill the demons so the modern world can exist. He if we were to ask what is Van Helsing philosophically, you know, symbolizing, he is like the Merlin in King Arthur. He is both the advisor to the heroes. He has secret knowledge that they don't have that he has to give and he has to help them get across the threshold. Sure, yeah. But what does that threshold mean? It means the destruction of the old monsters. And it's telling that in vampire folklore, it wasn't always that the vampires were monsters that had to be stopped. It is only until Christianity, where they're like, no, vampires, nope, we can't have them, they're wrong, you can't talk about them. These could be local deities, that are worshiped as these mystical, magical creatures with one foot in the grave and one foot in the real world, Van Helsing's role is to use science to help understand this thing so that it can be destroyed. And Van Helsing at every level couches things in the physical. He does cast spells and he does exercise the earth and not cast spells, but he does use prayer to do things like exercise the earth and get Lucy back into her, um, into her crypt so they can behead her. But he calls vampirism a disease, and he is using the tools of empirical knowledge on the superstitious. He is boxing it into, this is how we can understand this phenomenon, and this is how, ultimately, we fight it because it's about destroying the old in favor of the new. And that's where Van Helsing is, ushering everyone into the modern at the destruction of the ancient.
0: Uh, I think that's fair. I think that is a fair way to read that. For me, watching Van Helsing use a communion wafer and use religious rites in order to defeat those demons means he is aligning more with the uh, kind of ancient tradition and religion And folklore than uh, condemning it. He's not saying that those things are invalid or useless. He's saying we can incorporate that going forward rather than uh, dismissing it or disregarding it because we are men of science.
1: Well, yes, but to him, religion and science aren't separate. As were most men of science of that time. The idea of science was to understand God's creation. And to help understand, like, so most men of science that existed during, for example, Newton was a mystic, you know, Copernicus never disagreed with the Bible, but he said, listen, I, you know, the evidence gets me where I need to go. Right. It, like, so for him, the idea of, he, he lives in this intersection of Christian ideals that are, to him, inherently modern and scientifically based versus the pagan-esque, the, the transition between that where Dracula lives, where demons can walk the earth. Nope, we got to get rid of that. So now we can dedicate ourselves to Christian scientific modernity.
0: I think that's, yeah, okay. I'll I'll buy it. I will buy it.
1: Well, I'm not selling it. I'm giving it away for free on the internet.
0: I appreciate that.
1: Can we talk a little bit about some of the history of yes, this? Is that please. okay? Because I've been dying to talk about it. We're kind of at the end of the episode. This movie starts with the fall of Constantinople and the emergence of the Ottoman Turks as a major player in late medieval, early Renaissance politics. And I definitely just want to talk about that historical era, if that's okay with you.
0: Go for it.
1: Um, It states in the beginning of the movie, 1462, Constantinople had fallen. And just to, this is being very nitpicky, the Turks took Constantinople May 29th of 1453. So there is a little bit of a date discrepancy. However, Vlad the Impaler's major offensive against the Turks was in 1462. So I think that's kind of where they're playing. But I want to just answer a few fundamental questions. What was Constantinople? Why did it fall? Why did that matter to Eastern and Central Europe? And kind of who was this Vlad guy that this movie is basing Dracula off of, if that's cool with you? Yeah, please. Constantinople was founded by Constantine. He was a Roman emperor in the fourth century of the Common Era. He had reunited the two halves of the Roman Empire because they split. He moved the capital of the empire from Rome to Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, and he decriminalized Christianity. He made Christianity a legal religion and also the favorite religion of Roman emperors. That's a really simple gloss over. When the western half of the Roman Empire fell um, and plunged the Dark Ages into the western half so modern day europe half of north africa spain france england plunged into the dark ages the eastern half of the roman empire trucked right along we now call that time byzantium or the byzantine empire but it's worth noting that no one who lived in the or under the byzantine empire ever called themselves such We call them that going backwards. They called themselves the Romans and called themselves the Roman Empire. A few things did happen. They eventually abandoned Latin as their language and they developed their own, they used Greek as the main language and they were wedged between what eventually became under medieval politics, wedged between the medieval Christian um, states as well as all of these Islamic caliphates. There was a schism, a religious schism of 1054. I don't have much time to go into that, but it's fascinating. Fascinating. It's called the Iconoclasm. It had to do with idols. It had to do with Byzantium losing territory to Muslims. And that's what formed the Roman Catholic Church of the West and the Greek Orthodox Church of the East. That schism was thought to be temporary. Everyone thought they'd get over it they never did. Those religions are now still two separate religions of the day. Long story now long, emerging from the Islamic, now Middle East, Near East, were a group of people called the Turks. And the Turks started taking territory rapidly from the Byzantine Empire to the point where they had all of the territory surrounding Constantinople on every side. Now, Constantinople had never been breached. It had one of the most heavily fortified wall defense systems of the entire world. And this had pretty much lasted. And the reason this city still stood until the Turks came up with something called cannons. You may have heard of them. They fire large balls into walls and the walls crumble underneath them. So on May 29th, 1543, Constantinople falls, and it falls under the command of Sultan Mehmed II. Now, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing these names. Mehmed's a pretty cool dude, by the way, interesting historical character. Anyway, he makes his capital Constantinople, and he takes a new title, Kaiser Irum, which means Caesar of Rome he calls himself Caesar. And he uses the term Caesar of Rome as his justification of Greece. So after this, he sets his sights on Greece and wants to claim all of the territory once owned by the Romans. Needless to say, a lot of Greeks, after the Ottomans conquer it, flee. Where do they go? They go to Italy. And what do they do? They start training people on the classics. They start training people on Greek and Latin. They start training people on sculpture. And this little thing called the Italian Renaissance happens, story for another day. However, now we have an Ottoman control of Constantinople and we have, it eventually gets renamed as Istanbul. And we have the emergence of this huge, mighty and powerful new Islamic Rome. And what does it do? It sets its sights on all of the territory once owned by Rome. However, this is not an easy task. There are lots of little principalities in Central and Eastern Europe. And what does this sultan do? He pits them against each other. He starts saying, you're part with me, you part with them. And there's this place called Wallachia.
0: Yeah, here we go.
1: Wallachia had a prince- that prince was the, formed the Order of the Dragon, also known as the Order of the Dracul, and he pledges vassalship to the Sultan Mehmed II. Since he is the vassal of Mehmed II, he must give him tribute and military aid when called upon. When he doesn't do this, Mahmed has him and his older brother executed. And emerging that as the new prince, is Vlad. Now, Vlad grew up at court of the Sultan. He was held as a hostage. Vlad speaks fluent Greek. He speaks fluent Romanian. He speaks fluent Turkish. He was educated as the hostage. And Mohammed thought that if I put Vlad there, I will have a puppet in this you know Christian principality that I can control. And Vlad the Impaler. Vlad the Destroyer, Vlad Dracula, is a fascinating historical figure. He instantly says, F you, I'm not paying you tribute, and starts just mucking everything up for the Ottomans. He was not successful in any of his endeavors. Eventually, he ends up dead. He is known for his cruelty and for his torture. He does impale people. So at one point, 150,000 Turks are on their march to to try to dispose Vlad from being the prince. And what he does is he fights a war of attrition where he is scorched earth, they're following his army, he is killing anything and everything so that there are no supplies for them to take. And everywhere he goes, he's impaling people. Something that I've learned, if you impale someone properly, it takes approximately three days for them to die.
0: Oh God.
1: The Turks seeing this are rightfully scared out of their minds and they eventually abandoned the cause to pursue him all the way back to his castle. And they turn around and they go back to Constantinople. So what does Vlad do? Vlad gets with the, the King of Hungary and says, listen, I need help. I don't have a lot of troops. The Ottomans help me. And what does the King of Hungary do? He is a Christian not wanting to piss off the Ottomans, he imprisons Vlad, and he is impl- he is imprisoned for 15 years. Eventually, the King of Hungary lets him out. Says, "Okay, go back and now, because a two pro Ottoman prince is now in control of Wach- Wallachia." I can't say it. Wallachia. Wallachia. Yeah. That two entrenched pro-Turkish prince was Vlad's younger brother. Vlad ends up disposing his younger brother becomes the prince, but it doesn't last long, and eventually he dies and gets buried in an unmarked grave. Before he dies, he does say that he will come back after his death. And this is where the Dracula myth comes in. Nobody knows where Vlad was actually born. Depending upon who you are, Hungarian, Romanian, Ottoman, will depend upon what you think about Vlad and what he did. The, Romarian, the Romanians, pardon me, worshipped him.
0: Wow, yeah.
1: (laughs) Because this was a guy that said F you to the Ottomans at all times.
0: And Wallachia is today a part of geographical Romania.
1: Correct. And so the Romanians think of him as a hero, so they want to find where he's buried, and they think they do. They dig up the grave, and they find it empty.
0: Wow, I actually didn't know that bit about him. I have heard plenty of stories about Vlad the Impaler, but I did not know that piece of the folklore.
1: Now, no one knows where he is buried, so historians are very dubious about giving credit to this story, but it lends to the idea that there was this Romanian prince who bucked all of the great empires of the day, who was smarter, more clever, and smarter than them all, and so smart and clever that he outwitted death itself. And this is where the basis of Dracula comes from.
0: Which is interesting because if you read Bram Stoker's Dracula, clearly the only inspiration that Stoker is taking is the name. He's pulling uh, Vlad Dracula, Vlad son of the dragon, which is what that means, and just taking Dracula as the really cool name for his vampire. Originally, he was going to call the book The Dead Undead, and I think we can all agree he made a much better and more iconic choice. But there's really no other concrete link to the Vlad the Impaler story. However, Coppola is taking tons of concrete uh, evidence and tons of concrete strings to tie those stories together. He's creating this framing device around the lost love, the broken heart, the prince who impales people on the battlefield and then curses himself to eternal damnation and even includes like wood cuttings of Vlad the Impaler or Vlad Tepes in books that Van Helsing is researching. So he is trying to draw a very conscious line to that history.
1: He is. And so, and the basis of that does come from the fact that when people thought they found his grave and wanted to move it to a more special grave, they found it to be empty, which meant he did what he promised. He raised himself after the death. However, such historical anecdotes are often just those. They're anecdotes- They are more the stuff of legend than they are the thing of reality. But it lends credence to this local prince, a hero to some, a war criminal to others, and an annoyance to even the more powerful ones. And it lends credence to the idea, the land that invented the word vampires, most famous prince apparently rose from the dead It makes sense to use this name and the name itself, Dracula, from a Western English speaking lens has this sense of harshness, this sense, this link to dragonness, the links to serpents, the links to the devil.
0: Yeah, which today I believe in in Romanian, dracul instead of dragon means devil. I think the, the interpretation or the translation has changed to reflect that.
1: And it's worth also noting that when Vlad went to the prince of Hungary, the king of Hungary, and asked for help, he he went there saying, listen, we have to fight the Turks to save Christianity. Now, in reality, Vlad was probably trying to save his own ass. But he made an argument that there was a theological battle happening that needed to be fought in order to save Christianity, the same argument the movie makes. In reality, a lot of these small principalities had vassalage agreements, tribute agreements, worked with the Ottomans, worked with the Austro-Hungarians, and were cutting deals left and right to try to keep as much power and autonomy. It's more about land and wealth and glory than it is about any complex theological argument. After all, if saving Christendom was so important. Why didn't the larger powers of Europe at the time, who were Christian, come to help the Christian Constantinoples? The reason was there was no benefit in them for it. That had been tried before. It never worked. It's a little thing we call the Crusades. Topic for another podcast. Topic
0: for several other podcasts, I'm sure. Several
1: other podcasts, but the pretext of the Crusades was to heal the schism between the Greek Orthodox and Roman Catholic, and defend Constantinople from Islamic incursion. Never worked, in fact, quite the opposite. It ended up hurting the Byzantine Empire more than ever helping it. But long story short, by Coppola couching that there is a Christian hero in Vlad who the church itself betrayed ends up adding credence to both The empathy that we can feel for Dracula, as well as the non Westernness of Dracula.
0: I think that's amazing. And I appreciate that you've done all that research to bring that context in. I think once we kind of stir up the soup of the 19th century literature, of the ancient folklore, and of the history of Vlad the Impaler, we get a really unique blend and a really fascinating story that comes to brilliant life in Francis Ford Coppola's adaptation of this book. I think it's absolutely fantastic. And unless you have more, I would love to wrap up with kind of a fun question. Would that be okay with you? Done. Do you have a favorite costume in this movie? Because I think the costumes are so special. I want to call them out.
1: This might not be the one you think I would say, but I'm going to say it because I think it's really, really cool. Lucy's wedding slash burial dress. Isn't
0: it amazing? It's like Elizabethan meets Gothic meets just like high Renaissance art. It's fantastic couture.
1: And it's also designed to hide the bite marks on her neck.
0: Yeah. I was assuming you would say the, uh, the armor that Vlad wears in the first scene that looks like musculature on the outside, but also kind of like a bat. But uh, I think that's also a fantastic answer. Mine would be, and I really didn't pay too much attention to it in previous watches, but this watch I was like pausing it to look at it is the lavish robe that Dracula wears as he is traveling Uh, and in the climax of the film that is based on the Gustav Klimt painting, The Kiss, that's like gold and has these swirls and this Art Nouveau feel to it. It is only in the movie for a few scenes and a few short uh, frames, but it is so gorgeous and you can absolutely see why Oscars were won for the costume design for this movie. Just wanted to have a little fun with the costumes. Obviously, there's tons of amazing, luscious costume design and visual effects in this film. But uh, what else he got for Dracula?
1: Until next time, be kind.
0: I have crossed oceans of time to find you.